Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. We are your hosts, Justin Halsall, and I'm joined with the mysterious Luke Schantz. Now, Luke, you were at OzCon uh, quite recently, and I would like to quote a colleague of ours because they said, Hey, Luke, the NSA is here to see you. Which, when I heard that, I was like, What on earth is going on? This is amazing, surprising, potentially scary. Luke, were you able to escape? Please tell us what on earth were the NSA doing there and are you okay? Yeah. Why were they looking for me? Why were they looking for you? Why was the NSA looking for me? Well, so I was at OzCon and I'm uh, making my way around the trade show floor looking Mm -hmm. at the the different booths and I noticed a cell phone charging station and it was at the NSA booth and they had this really cheeky poster that said come on you know you want to try it nsa cell phone station <laughs> so they're they're leaning into any sort of uh espionage reputations or, yeah. or cliches it was very funny they also had posty notes that were labeled with the nsa emblem and then it said this is a recording device <laughs> so so that was that's that's quite funny it was quite funny so i went up to them and i said hey i really like this humor you have in your booth i wasn't expecting it you've you've surprised me and they said uh thanks and what do you do and so we start talking and it turns out they have community folks at the nsa as well Oh wow. yeah so uh, when i told them i was in developer relations and advocacy and doing a lot with open source they said we are too and then i said it is very surprising and then i said do you want to be on the ibm developer podcast they said yes. That's so cool. Did they have names? Were they allowed to give out their names? Like, was it just one person? Like, I have so many questions. Please. I had three people in this interview. Jacob DePriest, Emily Fox, and an unnamed developer who worked on the Ghidra project. Wow. Awesome. Let's get into it. Thank you so much, Luke. You're welcome. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Good to be here. So what is the NSA doing at OzCon? We have a couple reasons. We came last year and then we're here again this year. And open source is a big part of what we do. We're in the tech industry, just like pretty much almost any other company these days. You know, there's the saying that if it's a, if you're a company, you're also a software company right now. And we're very similar to that. And so we use a lot of open source software, but we also contribute a lot back. And so we just kind of want to come be more publicly engaged in that community. Yeah, we're here doing active recruitment efforts, but also to let people know that we're not the scary agency that everybody thinks that we are. We're actually pretty friendly people and we look normal. We don't usually wear suits, but nor carry guns as in the movie. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) We want to make sure that people understand what it is that we do, who we are, that we are actually people. We're human beings. We're doing our best and we're serving and defending everybody at home. I'm here because we recently open sourced a a large amount of software project called Ghidra, which is a reverse engineering tool. And we've been, as Jacob mentioned, on the sidelines using open source for a long time. And we wanted to give back to the community that has helped us out. That's really interesting. So can you tell me more about Ghidra? What what is it? What what are the what's the use of this software? So Ghidra is a reverse engineering tool. It has many cybersecurity uses, such as if you've got malware on your system, figuring out what that malware is doing, figuring out certain algorithms, or say you've lost the source code to a binary and you want to recover that source code. So you can, it has a disassembly engine that can handle many of the 
current day microprocessors, but it also has a decompiler, which is a data flow simplification engine that gives you back a representation in C of what that original code looked like. Not perfectly, but pretty close. For folks who may not be familiar with what a decompiler does, what's a use case that a company, they would use this maybe to analyze software from a vendor? How would you use this? You could use it to look at another vendor's software, but that isn't the use that... That would depend on the licensing of the software and whether you can reverse engineer or not. This is for uh, legal uses. But the more common thing that people would think about is, is someone's injected a virus onto your system and you've got a security company coming in and they want to see what that virus is doing, who it might be communicating with. So NSA has a big mission to protect the networks that are under our purview. And so you would use the software to find out what your adversary is doing to you, potentially. So you take the bytes, you disassemble them back to a sort of a machine, understandable text, and then you work on the software a little bit more and build it back up to something that a human might have understood and represented the software as. C code, we also do Java as well. Well, I think from a community standpoint, I think this is a great strategy because one thing developers really respect is giving to the community, right? And sharing the code and, and being open. And something else you're doing here is also promoting jobs at the NSA. Yeah, definitely. A lot of people don't realize that the agency has a very large development and engineering background. I mean, we we go back many, many, many decades. And a lot of the people that are within the agency come from a background that's highly technical, highly skilled workforce. I mean, we, we hire some of the best people to come work within the four walls. And we want to continue to reach out and get as much skills from the community, bring people in, not just straight out of college. I mean, we're definitely recruiting there, but we're also looking for mid to late career professionals that want to provide a legacy behind them that haven't had the opportunity necessarily to serve their country or to have a a lasting impact. We're looking for people that are trying to improve their skills. I'm part of our K through 12 outreach program within the agency as well. So we do a lot of really cool stuff in that space. But one of the things that I talk about whenever I go and I talk to students and, and middle school and high school is that there's pretty much every job at the agency. You can go online to intelligencecareers.gov forward slash NSA and look at what openings that we have. But it's a plethora of things. It's not just software developers. It's not just engineering professionals. It's not just business managers. We have whole swaths of careers. We hire nurses. We hire accountants. We have a whole bunch of financial people. I mean, lawyers. considering lawyers, yeah, considering yeah. how large the agency is, and we get a budget from the federal government, just like every other department and agency, and we get the funds where they need to go so we can move the mission forward and continue securing and defending the nation. And it's those, it's program managers, it's business analysts, it's software developers. I mean, I often joke, there's pretty much every job at the agency except for mortician. So, <laughs> I mean, realistically, there is. you. And one of the nice things about it is, is you can come in doing one thing and find out that it's not necessarily what your cup of tea is and switch later on and we'll help you do that. We want to make sure that you're passionate about what it is that you're doing and that you have the flexibility. We hire the people and the passion behind that. And you said you're also doing school outreach. So you're reaching out and going into communities and, and sort of 
helping to nurture the environment for people? Or Yeah, so the, the agency is very active in providing partners in education, outreach programs with educational institutions, and not just about like what it is that the agency does, but general skills and knowledge about cybersecurity, for instance. So we have a really great program. It's our K-12 through STEM outreach program. It's on NSA.gov. We also do internships and co-op opportunities. We have several development programs in-house, so we're, we're actively engaging with academia and industry and education to provide knowledge and awareness about all of these things that we're involved in. We want people to know that we're more than just an agency with four walls, and people are scared of that. We have friendly faces. We like talking to people about some of the really cool things in technology, especially as far as it's come in the past 20 years. I'd say part of the outreach is one of the other reasons why we released Ghidra is for all the cybersecurity programs that are in schools and things. It helps train up the next set of people who are going to defend the nation against all the cybersecurity threats that keep popping up nowadays. Yeah. But, you know, it's very important to get these people to understand that there are these security issues. If you look inside of software rather than just what you see coding it, it's a whole different world. And the more you understand that, the more you can secure it before it gets out in the world in use. Yeah, it's incredibly important to us. We have two main missions at the NSA. We have the signals intelligence mission, kind of gathering foreign intelligence to inform our policymakers. And then the other main mission, cybersecurity. I mean, so that's like one of the core two key missions at NSA is cybersecurity and defense of our nation's defense networks. Do you have active developers outside that are contributing back to this project? We do. The response has been very good. I was handling a few pull requests while I'm here out at OSCON. And, you know, we've been a little overwhelmed, actually, by some of the response. And that's been great. This is something new for us. We've been developers inside for a while. You know, we've been doing what's termed inner source here for quite a while. And this is we're developing new means to balance that in our daily development. So part of the success with Ghidra, and the agency's been releasing open source software for a while now. We've recently stood up an open source center within the agency to kind of help shepherd folks on the inside. A lot of the inner source products that we've been working on to find out whether or not there is a community space in the open source community about whether or not we should be releasing a product. How do we do that? How do we enable people inside our walls to contribute back out to the community? And now that we have a center to do that, it's become a lot easier for us to engage in the community and give back. And I think one other aspect of releasing this tool is that it gives us a way to common framework, platform, set of software so we can engage the community in an open way. Very interesting. I always like to ask my guests their tech origin stories. So for me, it was a a Commodore 64. For some people, it's a TRS-80 or a ham radio. Or Let's start with with you, Emily. What's your tech origin story? What started you down the path? Actually, it's kind of funny. I don't really have a tech origin story. I did not start out in technology. I actually started out as a creative director for an entertainment company. I did art. I did event planning and all of that fun stuff. I did marketing and then realized the days were very long. I didn't like having to bring work home with me. So being able to switch careers and move into security, and that's kind of where I got started, is just getting the right things to line up, jumping on the security bandwagon, so to speak, and then discovering like what security is in relation to technology. It's a new and developing field. It still is. And, and going down the path that way, I've been moved around between different offices and I still have a very heavy security background, but I'm more on the developer kind of side. So I deal with a lot of development teams. 
That's really interesting. We actually have parallel lives. I used to be in entertainment as well, and uh, I actually love working in tech because for very reasons that you mentioned, it's 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 a big industry. There's lots of jobs. It's it's much more stable and and sort of less nights and weekends. Yeah, well, the nice thing about working for where we work at the National Security Agency is we don't get to take our work home. <laughs> How about you? Uh, what's your... So I, this might date me, but I'd say Pong, but uh, then it's a little bit further than that. I had an Atari, had a cassette tape, not a, a disk drive, and that was, that was fun. I think a lot of people in the cybersecurity industry got their start with computer games, so the same is true for me. I really enjoy my career at the agency and uh, developing the software that we can now share. How about you, Jacob? For me, I think it was probably high school getting a PC and basically destroying it by putting Linux on it over and over and over again. And back when that used to not be an easy thing. Off that of took, 24 floppies. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think it was CDs at that point. But yeah, so doing that and then kind of getting into programming and getting jobs related to it and went from there. Kind of been doing the open source thing ever since school as well, contributing to open source and working in open source projects. Well, I think our listeners are going to be pleasantly surprised that you're sharing uh, and working in open source. Is there any recommendations you would have for folks who are looking to get roles or to get into the intelligence work? That's a really good question. A lot of what I talk to kids about when they're looking to actually find figure out what their majors are going to be in college is don't just limit yourself. Sometimes having a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things is enough to be dangerous and actually discover where your passions lie. So we do, one of the really neat things about the agency is we have a lot of education opportunities in-house to allow people to explore and expand their knowledge about other subjects. It it creates a more well-rounded individual, and that's a lot of what we look for, is people that are super highly focused on a particular area and passionate, which is great. We, we need those. But we also look for people that are well-rounded, have an open mind, and are diverse in their thinking and diverse in their acceptance of conflicting viewpoints about how things should work together, whether or not an architecture is the only way to do a particular effort. So we look for a lot of that. So if I had a college student come to me right now, like, what what's the fastest way for me to get in? I'm going to tell them right now to apply online and then let me know when you do. <laughs> and we'll, we'll pull your information out of our system but go with something that you're passionate about and focus on that and don't just sit in a dark corner by yourself talk to other people in the community a lot of it has to do with networking opportunities finding the right people to help you out and and help discover other things that might link to what you're passionate about because you, you never know you might need to like just try something different, get involved, talk to the person sitting next to you about what it is that they're working on. It might give you an idea about something else. Expanding kind of technical training outside of sort of traditional classroom work. Um, The tech industry is moving so fast right now. And, you know, university curriculums are not sort of as speedy as tech adoption sort of in the commercial world. It's good to lay a, a solid foundation. But we were given sort of a presentation on modern software development a couple months ago. And I looked at it and I realized nothing we were presenting are, are things I learned in school. And so just sort of allowing yourself the freedom to go learn other things and explore. There's no way anybody can keep up with everything that's going on. Picking an area you're interested in and then trying to stay up, go to conferences, read books, listen to podcasts. You know, what's the latest thing that's going on? And I think that really helps professional development and it helps, you know, become well-rounded and be able to solve problems. Continual education is key. I like people that are reading the latest blogs, but more than that, they're watching YouTube videos to learn about things. They're reading books if they can and they have the opportunity applying for scholarships to go to conferences. It increases your awareness out of things outside of that silo that you would otherwise be stuck in. 
So definitely continual education. I was looking at your website. I noticed the NSA also licenses technology. So you develop a lot of things in-house and then license them to the private sector. We do. We have a really healthy tech transfer office. And so the Open Source Center that Emily mentioned earlier, we're actually partnering. That that center partners with the tech transfer office. And there's a lot of different ways that we can partner with industry. And so some of it's licensing, some of it's creative research and development agreements that we can form, some of it's direct engagement with academia, and some of it's open source. And so, yeah, so it's a really interesting way to try and take the things that are happening inside and get them out to industry. There's a lot of patents that happen as well, because we do a lot of science and tech, and we have, I think, the number one or at least very high number of mathematicians. Like we're, we hire more mathematicians than anybody in the country. We're actually the largest employer of mathematicians in the world. There you go. And that goes back to the roots of the agency. That's what we started with is cryptography. We do more than just contribute code back out to the community. Yeah. We're actively involved. So the agency has been in open source for almost two decades. And, and a lot of people don't realize it, but SE Linux was kind of where we got started. But we do more than just that now, and you'll see a lot more open source releases from the agency and over the next couple of years. And you've actually probably seen it in the past several years that we've started increasing our presence. We actually just revamped our website, nsa.dev or code.nsa.gov. So it looks a lot nicer and a little bit more modern. But it's something that we've been doing for a long time. And we're trying to provide code back out to the community. I mean, we use a lot of it. And it saves taxpayers a ton of money being able to, to contribute and pull in information from the open source community. We want to adhere to as much as federal policy. We have actually a federal source code policy, M1621, that we adhere to, provide that back out to the community, get the taxpayers the most bang for their buck, essentially. One of the things our team is working on with the Open Source Center is how can we help sort of developers who are developing in a secure environment get that code back out? So I think every company has to deal with intellectual property, whether it's for a company, it could be a competitive advantage. For us, it might be a security thing that we have to talk about. Is this appropriate to release or not release? And so we have those processes set up and we're trying to find ways to streamline those and make them easier, make them more transparent for our folks because we really want and believe that it's beneficial for us and the taxpayers to have this code out there. And so we have about 40 projects out on our GitHub page today, and we're working with groups all over the agency now trying to figure out how to ease that and make that more attainable for more teams to be able to kind of operate in open source. Was it a real struggle to get this approved to be able to, to work open source? So I think talking in terms of Ghidra, we've thought about it for quite a while. And by quite a while, I mean five or six years. And so the road to getting the team involved and on board, as well as the agency, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, that was, it was a struggle. You know, even down to the icon and the legalese of, is this a, a proper icon for us? So it's been a long road, but I'm glad it, it happened and uh, that the community could, can benefit from it. And our processes now are better than they used to be. So back in 2013, I was involved with a project called Red Hawk. It's a software-defined radio framework, and it's out on our GitHub page. And this was before we really had any of these processes in place. And we were the tech transfer office that we work with so closely stood up kind of a lot of the, the documented ways to do this. And so that took 18 months to get that one out because we were sort of defining the approval processes as we, we went along. And so now we have a solid process, but what we're looking to do is can we make it even easier? Can we go ahead and tee up things like, here's, here's sort of normal language. If you're 
working between a civilian and contractor group, there's different intellectual property concerns. Federal employees aren't afforded copyright protection under U.S. law, but a lot of open source licenses are centered around copyright. And so how do you deal with that? And then if you're working with companies or academia, how does that all mix together? And so each one's kind of a special snowflake and we're trying to figure out how to make it easier for teams when they're starting their development projects to be aware of all this stuff so that they can make choices early on to enable a better open source path and not complicate things if they don't have to. Yeah, we had to develop a review process for all of our source code, and it was with an eye towards licensing. Everything was bagged and tagged as to which license and which license could go with what other license. So that was you know, sort of a minefield. And then you realize that the way you're using that particular thing is not copacetic with this other thing. Now you got to redesign the way it works. And so we settled on something and we have some GPL code that is used within our software in the correct manner that can be used with other pieces, you know, MIT licenses and others. And that was difficult. We've also tried to figure out, you know, we want to accept contributions. We don't want to just put code out there. We want to be engaged with the community. So what's the best way to have a, a open source project that has a mix of community committers or contributors and government federal civilian committers, how do you deal with contributions and the licensing and all that stuff. And so we've taken a page out of the Defense Digital Services book here. as They're part of USDS, U.S. Digital Services as well, trying to look at the different ways we can do that. And so we've kind of teed up a couple options for teams on how they can do it, sort of a modified version of the services handbook. And so we want to offer developers and teams a couple different options for accepting contributions. And so we've kind of looked at using the developer certificate of origin approach, which is what the Linux kernel uses and a lot of other folks use. It's sort of the, it seems to be gaining popularity over sort of traditional contributor license agreements. And it's a lot less paperwork and it's all in get, which is really nice. And then the other kind of option we're looking at as well to offer to teams is being able just sort of use the standard inbound outbound. So if you put a license on the project, the inbound contributions fall under the terms of the license that's on the project. And so that's sort of the normal way GitHub works and a lot of these sort of source code repositories work. And so teams are kind of choosing that and working on what's best for them and to facilitate good community engagement. I'm impressed. And I must say, while I was surprised, the more I think about it, there has been a, a really long history of government releasing things. I mean, we wouldn't have the, the internet as we know it today, right? We wouldn't have the zipper. We wouldn't have all of these things without government technology being being released. Yeah, there's quite a few other agencies. NASA comes to mind. They've got a huge open source presence. Yeah. Um, it's not just NSA that's doing it. I mean, that federal source code policy I mentioned earlier, it applies to a lot of different people. Some of us have exceptions, but the federal government, like Jacob said earlier, we're civil servants. We don't get copyright protection because the taxpayers are paying for us to do our job. And a lot of that has to do with being able to create specific things for the federal government's needs. And to the benefit of the taxpayers and the rest of the community, it's giving that back out to them. You paid us to do it. Here it is. Let's make it available to you where it's reasonable and appropriate. At the federal level, there's a website called code.gov where you can go see sort of all the different open source projects that all the agencies are doing. And so we register all our projects there. It's sort of kind of a listing, if you will, broken down by agency of who's doing what. And so that's kind of part of the federal source code policy, and it's also just a really good way to kind of capture what the federal government's doing. And we're working with a lot of different other agencies talking about this, trying to see how we can uh, do more and, and be better at this. And that was going to be my next question, actually, is has like the process of 
releasing code facilitated collaboration between government agencies. And it sounds like it has. Yeah, it really has. So we're in several different working groups on open source in the federal government trying to figure out you know, what's this look like? How do we deal with the copyright issues? All those kind of things. And I, I think those are really good conversations that we want to be involved in, we are involved in, and that I think are progressing. Well, thank you all for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was our yeah, pleasure. Thank you. thank you so much for listening to that. I learned so much that I didn't know about before. If you'd like to check out more of our podcasts, of course, go to developer.ibm.com slash podcasts. Subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all of that good stuff. Please, if you have any questions, you can direct them to my fabulous co-host, Luke Chance, at, at Luke Chance on Twitter. And my handle is at Juice10. If you'd like to check out Ghidra, that's G-H-I-D-R-A-S-R-E.org. So G-H-I-D-R-A-S-R-E.org. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you so much for listening.